0: Hello, and welcome to Refuge Church Podcast. My name is Nicole, and I'm one of the pastors here at Refuge. This week, we keep deep diving into our series in Jonah, and I actually had the opportunity to teach this one. And when I'm writing a sermon, sometimes I struggle with wanting to really teach and deep dive into the theology of some of these stories. I have a desire for people to see the deeper meaning in Scripture, and I want to help people deconstruct and reconstruct their faith as best I can, but sometimes I let that get in the way of the true heart of the gospel message. This week, as I was preparing my sermon, I went back to something my mom always tells me, and she says there's too much Jesus to preach. There's too much Jesus, there's too much gospel, there's too much good news to get bogged down with some of that stuff in the margins. So as I look at Jonah's prayer this week, and we walk through it together, I hope it's a fresh and thought-provoking perspective on this age-old tale. We talk about how Jonah experiences God's grace even in the deep, even on the brink of death, even in the belly of Sheol. So whether you're a longtime believer or you're just curious to find out more, I hope this message leaves you with a deeper understanding of the grace and the mercy and the love of a very big God. Refuge is a safe place. Refuge is a safe place. Refuge is a safe place for all people. For all people. For all people to explore and restore. To explore and restore. To restore and explore. To explore and restore their faith in Jesus and His church. Refuge is a safe place for all people to explore and restore their faith in Jesus and His church. Huh? And His church. And His church. Love. Finding humor in all sorts of situations, and I love making people laugh, so when you don't laugh, I feel like I'm failing, so even if you don't think I'm funny, just laugh. But I love making fast. Let people laugh, whether it's over coffee or playing golf at top golf, dinner with friends, at funerals. I just love being the there you go. <laughs> threw that one in there. I love being the sarcastic, um, funny friend, and if you think the funeral thing is just a joke, you haven't been to a funeral with me yet. And as a millennial, one of my favorite outlets of humor is memes. I love a good meme. Love a good meme. If you're friends with me on Facebook or Instagram, you know that primarily it's memes in my story. I love it. Carly is always liking my stories, and it just is that boost of, of, of uh, praise that I need. And so I want to share a few memes with you tonight. One of my favorite shows is Friends, obviously, but also The Office. So I have some memes I want to share with you tonight. I feel like this one is appropriate because I'm always laughing at my own jokes. Any Office fans? And there you go. I always hate when people are like, oh, I never really got into The Office. Okay. <laughs> I never really got into being friends with you. So how's that? how about that? <laughs> All right. And then the next one, this one is pretty rela- Relatable. When I leave work, I'm going to hit the gym, fold the laundry, get some cleaning done and cook food and then just pop open a big bucket of cheese balls and just go to town. And then I threw this one in there um for Brian. This is the millennial retirement plan. A van down by the ri- <laughs> down by the river. If you were here last week that one's really funny, but if you anyways so my point, what is the point in all of this? You might be wondering, does she have a point? I do, pretty much. Memes, fiction, satire, irony, sarcasm, all of these things can be used to make us laugh, but also to draw um, to draw lines to real life issues. Brian talked last week about the satirical nature of Jonah and how there's humor to be found in this biblical story. There's hyperbole, irony, personification, metaphor, allegories. Just insert your literary vocab here. It's all in this story. And authors, especially um, ancient authors would use these tools to help describe and express massive exaggerations to make a point. One big exa- exaggeration that the author and Jonah actually uses is um, the the escape plan Jonah has to run away from God. I have a map here I want to show with you of where Jonah started. It's hard to see. I tried to make it as big as I could. but So Jonah starts over here. And his plan is to run all the way over here. That's like going across from Florida to California. It's a big exaggeration to make the point that Jonah was doing absolutely everything he could to get away from God. So whether you think Jonah is fiction or non-fiction, history or hyperbole, the story is bigger than all of it. The story is bigger than a man, bigger than a boat, bigger than a storm and a fish. It's even bigger than however we interpret the story. Jonah is a story story. Of repentance and found within a story of repentance found within the bigger story of grace that will ultimately point us to Jesus, the Messiah, God's vessel for undeserved grace. For me, Jonah it carries a lot of significance, um, like Brian mentioned when he talked about Nehemiah being a significant part of his faith journey. Jonah holds a little place in my heart in being significant for me. So as a lot of you know, I was raised uh, very Pentecostal, very evangelical. And so whether it was intentional or not intentional, I was raised with the belief to read Scripture literal. Every word literal. Everything happened just the way that it is written in the Bible, and that's how you should believe it. And if you don't, if you doubt it, if you question it, heretic blasphemy that's how i was raised whether that was taught to me like right out outright in sunday school or whether it was just a subliminal message when i drank the kool-aid there you go but i was raised to believe to take it literal and so when i was living in ohio the pastor at the church that i was working at did a series on the book of jonah And he always gave us the resources we could use. And he handed us a 100-page book on Jonah. And I was like, yeah, I can read a 100-page book on Jonah. Turns out, ADHD brain, no, it can't. I got three-quarters of the way through and abandoned it. And and I know because I went to this book as a resource for tonight. And, like, three-quarters of it is underlined and highlighted and bookmarked. And the last quarter of it, pristine. Like... (laughs) adh in the house know what i'm talking about like you get you're like a book and then like eh, i'm done but this book even though i didn't finish it in the beginning of the book it introduced this idea to me that jonah could possibly be a work of fiction that it could have been a dream that jonah had that he woke up and recorded it could have been just a fictional story that somebody wrote about jonah the pros- prophet But it brings up this point that Jonah might not actually be a historical account. Cut to my brain looking like this. Chaos, fire, the whole world's coming to end. Like a grown man jumping off a boat in the middle of a hurricane, sinking hundreds of feet underneath the surface of the water, living in the belly of a well for three days with seaweed wrapped around his head. you want to tell me that that didn't happen? What's next, Santa Claus? (laughs) So I was already on the verge of a massive faith crisis, and what this could have done is sent me into a spiral out of control, but instead it pushed me deeper into Scripture, deeper into studying, deeper into reading the Bible in a whole new way. I credit Jonah as being a catalyst for my deconstruction and my reconstruction, but beyond that, it pushed me to rediscover a God who has a wild and vivid imagination, who uses creativity to tell a story. A God who is great in mercy and a God who is rich in love. I rediscovered a God in whose image I have been made. And in his presence, I am loved and accepted completely as I am. So where are we in the story? Well, to recap what Brian preached about last week, God tells Jonah to go to Nineveh. Jonah disobeys. Jonah runs away, gets on a boat. Can you believe it took him twenty eight minutes to do all that? <laughs> and you're fired. <laughs> so Jonah one, verse the second half of verse three says, He went down to the port of Joppa where he found a ship leaving for Tarshish. He bought a ticket and went on board, hoping to escape from the Lord. So right we're about to be introduced to a crew of supporting characters the sailors. At this point in time and throughout literature and history, sailors didn't have a great reputation. I don't think they have a good reputation now. You know, you don't say cuss like a sailor because, you know, they have a nice vocabulary. They don't have a great reputation. They were, so, they were socially and emotionally fractured. They plundered. They committed violence. They stole things. They sailed the high seas as violent, heartless, godless pagans. And to the ancient hearer and reader of the story of Joda, they would have been dirty men, bottom of the barrel, alcohol-soaked low lives. And for our purposes tonight, I'd like you to picture Captain Jack Sparrow. Now, they may not have looked like this in Jonah's story, but we do know one thing about them. We know they are non-Israelites who worshiped other gods. There's literary clues in the story that tell us they're non-Israelites who worshiped other gods. Does this sound like anybody else we've been introduced to in this story so far? Yes, of course it does. It sounds exactly like the people Jonah was called to in the first place, the Ninevites, the non-Israel Lights who worshiped other gods, the Ninevites, the same people Jonah was running from, he gets on a boat with. So we're going to pick up in Jonah chapter 1, verse 4. But the Lord hurled a powerful wind over the sea, causing a violent storm that threatened to break the ship apart. Fearing for their lives, the desperate sailors shouted to their gods that's how we know they're pagans for help, and they started to throw their cargo overboard to lighten the ship. But all this time, Jonah was sound asleep down in the hold. So the captain went down after him and said, how can you sleep at a time like this? Get up, pray to your God. Maybe he will pay attention to us and spare our lives. Something important to notice here, that Jonah is still very much operating out of a place of prejudice. He's getting on, the bo- on, the, on this boat with the same riffraff he's trying to run away from. But he gets on this boat and then gets as physically far away from them as he can. Down in the hold of the ship. Still operating out of a place of prejudice. He's not even willing to share the same space on this boat of these people that he's using to get away from God. At every turn up until this point, Jonah has been self-absorbed. He's been bigoted. He's been foolish. But completely unaware living in denial of his own faults, his own shortcomings, and he's not willing to admit his own sin, not willing to admit his own disobedience, or that he's too privileged to share space with a violent, heartless, godless pagans. Verse 7 says, And the crew cast lots to see which of them had offended the gods and caused this terrible storm. When they did, the lots identified Jonah as the culprit. Why is this awful storm coming down on us? They demanded, Who are you? What country are you from? Jonah answered, I am Hebrew, and I worship the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the land. The sailors were terrified when they heard this, for he had already told them that he was running away from the Lord. Oh, why did you do it? They groaned. It's funny that out of all of the characteristics Jonah could have used to describe God in this moment, all of the things he could have said about God or not said about God, he chose to say that he worships the God who made the land and the sea. The God who created it controls it, and it all clicks with these sailors. It all clicks with these violent, heartless, godless pagans that his God, the God who made the sea, controls the sea, has sent this storm. And they say, Why did you do it? What have you done? And verse 11, since the storm was getting worse, they asked him, what should we do to you to stop this storm? Throw me into the sea and it will become calm again because I know that this storm is all my fault. So what happens next is important. The sailors know it's Jonah's fault. The storm is getting stormier and they ask Jonah what they should do. And he answers, throw me into the sea. Get rid of me, throw me off the boat. And so if you still have Captain Jack Sparrow in your mind, it doesn't seem like a big lake to say, walk the plank, baby. Like they do it all the time, right? Like you've been on Pirates of the Caribbean at Disney. That's walking the plank, throwing people into the waters. And we might expect that it would be easy for these violent, godless, heartless pagans to not even flinch at this request. Throw you off the boat. We'll be safe. Okay. But verse 13 says, instead... The sailors rode even harder to try and get the ship to land. These pa- pagan sailors present us with a shift in perspective. They also disobey in order. They disobeyed Jonah, and they try to save his life. But the sea, the sea was too violent for them, and they couldn't make it. They go to throw Jonah overboard, but first, but first they prayed not to their gods, but they cried out to the Lord, Jonah's God. Then the sailors picked Jonah up, threw him into the raging sea, and the storm stopped at once. The sailors were awestruck by the Lord's great power, and they offered him a sacrifice and vowed to serve him. So what just happened? Jonah runs from saving violent, heartless, godless pagans. He gets on a boat with violent, heartless, godless pagans. And in a whole hoopla of disobedience and not a single man doing what they were told to do, these violent, heartless, godless pagans, they pray, they worship And they turn to God. The very thing that made Jonah want to run away in the first place, God still accomplishes. Bringing violent, heartless, godless pagans into his fold, into his family. But God, he does what only God can do. God's grace doing what only God's grace can do. Even in the midst of Jonah's disobedience. So we get to the most famous part of the story, verse 17. And it says, now the Lord had arranged for a great fish to swallow Jonah. And Jonah was inside the fish for three days and three nights. And Jonah succeeds in running away from God. He mission accomplished. He wants to run away from God. But it's not because he jumped in the boat or out of the boat into the water. And it's not because the sailors threw him off. But it's because of what happens in the water. And it often gets taught or thought that Jonah gets swallowed immediately. I mean, that little cartoon we showed it, he went flying into the air straight into the fish's mouth. Like the fish is just like right below the surface, like, like when you go to hibachi and they try to get broccoli in your mouth. But all verse 17 says is that God arranged or provided or prepared, depending on what translation or version you want to read. So tonight, when we talk about this next chapter with the thought of the idea of the fish being delayed... I'll point out some clues to you of why I think this, but let's not, for for the next few moments, let's not think that the fish was right there waiting. Let's think for a moment that the fish took its time. So chapter two, the sailors have heaved Jonah overboard. The sea stops raging and Jonah begins a slow descent towards the bottom of the ocean. As the weight of the water presses in on him, he's reminded of the weight of his own decisions. There's currents pushing him down further and further, down into silent chaos of the great deep. Sinking to the very bottom of the created world, he's being crushed by the deepest parts of the ocean. Finally, he's about to accomplish what he set out to do. Run from God. Down in the realm of the dead. We've been singing about it for the last couple of weeks. We've been talking about this place called Sheol. The belly of Sheol. What is this place? For the ancient audience, they would have understood, and they would have understood it as just a shadow, shadowy underworld where dead people live. It's not really hell, but it's not not hell, if that makes sense it's a neutral shadowy existence for departed souls to just swirl around endlessly it's separation and what comes to mind when i think of Sheol, i'm a i'm a visual person but i think of the underworld and the river of souls from the historically accurate account of disney's hercules so that, when I think of Sheol, this is what comes to mind. Just the dark underworld and the green sea of souls just swirling around and floating. There's no reward. There's no punishment. It's just this neutral place where the soul has been separated from the body. You've been separated from everything and everyone you know in, in this realm. But most importantly, in Jonah's case, Sheol means separation from God. Jonah's life is fading away, and I imagine him slipping in and out of consciousness. Time distorts. His life above the surface starts to fade away into infinite darken- darkness and deafening silence. But then God. Psalms 139 says, where can I go from your spirit or where can I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol you are there. God arranges. God provides. God prepares. God sends a fish. And for three days and three nights in the belly of a fish, Jonah calls out to God from the realm of the dead. He calls out to God in distress, and God answers. Jonah chapter 2, 3 says, you threw me into the depths of And I sank down to the heart of the sea. The mighty waters engulfed me. I was buried beneath your wild, stormy waves. I then said, O Lord, you have driven me from your presence. Yet I will look one more time to your holy temple. This, verses 3 through 6, are why I think Jonah was actually drowning, almost dead before the fish came along. He talks about being engulfed and buried. He talks about being in the belly of Sheol, having its gates trap him in. Forever. Jonah nears the realm of the dead and on the very brink of death, as far away from God as he can possibly get and the whole metaphor through the book of jonah is about spiritual descent spiritual separation from god whether it's through the effects of a fallen world or it's from our own humanity or our own stupidity or our own sin and our own disobedience but being completely and utter utterly separated from our creator psalms 139 i want to read a few more verses it says i can never escape from your presence I can never get away from your spirit. If I go up to heaven, you are there. If I go down to the grave, you are there. If I ride on the wings of the morning, if I dwell by the farthest oceans, even there, your hand will guide me and your strength will support me. I could ask the darkness to hide me and the light around me to become night, but even in darkness, I cannot hide from you. To you, the night shines as bright as day and darkness and light. Are the same to you. And if God, as creator, is intimately involved and connected with his creation, it stands to reason that you have to go outside of the created world to truly run away from God. You have to die. You have to enter into the realm of the dead. You have to be in the belly of Sheol to be completely separated from God. Romans 6, 23, for the wages of sin is death. Jonah hits rock bottom. He has died imprisoned in earth the gates lock and shut him in forever and shield without reward without punishment just this void completely and utterly separated from god you know the language really gives no indication that jonah didn't die (laughs) we have no reason to believe that we have reason to believe for me when i read it that jonah actually died and he's done it He's run from God, dead, tumbling through chaotic waters, deeper and deeper, darker and darker, sinking to the gates of the underworld. But God, but you, O oh Lord, brought me up from the pit. Jonah's descent is over. God sends his fish down to shield to rescue Jonah from eternal separation and death and raises him up out of the deep. So whether you discuss Jonah as metaphor, satire, allegory, fiction or nonfiction, it still begs the question of why. Why did this book get written? Why is it in the Bible? Why are we teaching on it? And like Brian said last week, Jonah is like a mirror and a magnifying glass used to used to zoom in on our life and to mess with us. Zoom in and holding up a mirror to our own spiritual lives. But in this chapter, it does so much more than that. Instead of zooming in and holding up a mirror to show us our sin, zooming in and holding up a mirror to show our disobedience and our shame and our our defiance and all the things that make us about as good as violent, heartless, godless pagans, chapter 2 zooms in and holds up not a mirror of our flaws and our faults, but it holds up God's grace and God's mercy. And it all points us to Jesus. The Savior who did what we could not do for ourselves. and as I wrap this up, I want to circle back to a couple of verses. Verse 4 says, But the Lord, verse, chapter 1, verse 4 said, But the Lord hurled a powerful wind over the sea, causing a violent storm that threatened to break the ship apart. In the Old Testament, everything was caused by God that's how they saw the world every storm every drought every disaster every earthquake everything brought on by God's command and if we believe in an almighty God like I do it's not a far leap to believe that he is in control of the storm and he sends these things but if I'm being honest and transparent with you tonight I wrestle with this idea And a lot of Christians hold on to this belief in one way or another. But for me, I struggle to believe in a God who sends storms, who sends floods and hurricanes and earthquakes and sickness and war. I struggle to believe that God does that. To put it to something more relatable, whether we like it or not, to to hold to this belief would mean that we would have to believe that God sent Hurricane Ian to this city because of sin and rebellion and in disobedience. And if we're going off of Jonah's story, it could have been just a sin and disobedience and rebellion of one person. A lot of Christians said this about Hurricane Katrina when it hit New Orleans, a city of sin wiped out by God's judgment. So every innocent believer, every faithful Christian is just collateral damage for God's punishment for one person or one group of people. I wrestle with that. I wrestle with the Lord hurled a powerful wind because that's not the grace and the mercy of a God that I know. And attached to this also comes the belief is that God pushes us to rock bottom so that we come back to him. God lets bad things happen to us so that we repent. What? As I was throwing these ideas and bouncing some things off Brian, he said to me, Every sin has a storm attached to it. Verse 3 in chapter 2, Jonah says, You threw me into the ocean depths. Even Jonah gives God credit for his descent to literal rock bottom. But in chapter 1, verse 12, we see that Jonah said, Throw me into the sea. As long as you feel like there's something you can do to save yourself, You will always find ways to keep from giving yourself completely. To the Lord, Jonah knew he was in the water because of his own rebellion against God. Jonah was able to justify everything he'd done. He was able to justify quitting being a prophet. He was able to justify quitting ministry. He was able to justify running away from God, getting on a boat. He was able to justify it all, suppressing his own guilt long enough until he felt the literal weight of all his decision pressing in on him as he sunk deeper and deeper into the depths of the ocean. He finally saw his own sin clearly and then called out to God. Not only do we have to recognize our own sin, we have to recognize there's nothing we can do to save ourselves. So often we want to blame God for what's going wrong in our lives, but more often than not, it's because of our own humanity. It's our own choices, our own stupidity. Jonah says, you threw me Nah, man, you ran away. You chose to be disobedient every step of the way, leaving your hometown, going to Joppa, buying a ticket, getting on the boat, going down into the hold, sleeping. You made every choice. Our disobedience, our rebellion, our foolishness, our running is more often than not the culprit of the storm in our lives. Every sin has a storm attached to it. But the beauty of this story, the beauty of Jonah's story, is that at rock bottom, God provides a way. Ephesians 2 says, but God's so rich in mercy, and he loved us so much that even while we were dead... Because of our sins, he gave us life when he raised Christ from the dead. So even at the bottom of shield, even at the climax of our disobedience, even when we lay spiritually dead in our own sin, but God, but God provides, but God prepares, God arranges, God saves, God heals, God moves, God works, God makes a way when it seems like there is no way, but God, so rich in mercy, So great in love that while I'm running away, while I'm choosing disobedience, while I'm choosing to rebel, while I'm choosing to run away from God, he sent Jesus to die for me to pay a debt I could not pay, that I could never pay, to do what I could not do. Jonah's story is of God's grace, even when he's an idiot. Thank God for his grace when we're idiots. Am I right? (laughs) I'm going to invite the band to come up as I wrap this up. So like I told you, I was raised Pentecostal, real evangelical. And this is the part of the sermon where the pastor would be like, you know your sin. Your sin is this. And this is what you need to come to the altar and repent for. And you get feeling real guilty and you just go down to the altar and cry. You don't really know why you're there. This is me working out trauma as an adult in a public public space. But I don't, need to, I don't need to do that tonight. You know where you are. You know why you're here. You know how and where you need God's grace in your life. I'm not here to point out your sin to you. I got, I got enough going on over here. You know what I mean? Like, what is it? Splinter and a plank? I don't know. I should know the Bible better. But we're going to close like we always do. With some worship and his meditation. And I want you to meditate on this. That God's grace is enough you know in Jonah's prayer if you read chapter 2 closely there's no indication that Jonah thinks or believes that he's going to get to live out his days anywhere other than in the belly of a fish he doesn't get thrown up until after he prays the prayer and so if you read it like it is there's really nothing that tells us that he's actually going to get out of the fish But for Jonah, as he's praying and repenting and worship and sinking God, the grace of the fish was enough just to be out of the belly of shield, just to be out of that separation from God. Because even in the belly of the fish, Jonah was connected to God again. That grace, that mercy of just the fish was simply enough. I'm going to ask you to stand in tonight as we praise and we repent and we worship and we pray to the Lord. Let's rejoice in the fact that God's grace is enough. Thank you so much for listening. If you'd like to join us in person, we meet every Saturday night at 530 at 1901 Brantley Road, Fort Myers. You can catch all of our live stream on Facebook or YouTube at Refuge Church Fort Myers. And we're also on Instagram at refuge.church. Thank you so much for listening. We'll see you next week.